Hello and welcome to Eco Insights. I'm one of your hosts, Chloe Young. And I'm Georgia Stahl. And today we're here with Professor Javier Basulto, who is a professor at Duke University. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Can you start us off by just telling us a bit about yourself? Yeah, um, well, thank you so much for the invitation, Chloe and Georgia. It's really great to be here. Um, I'm from Mexico originally, and I, I've been working in the Gulf of California of Northwest Mexico for 20 years now. I can't believe it. Um, and so I've been trying to understand uh, a lot of different issues related to sustainability of the coastal environment there. And now I'm lucky enough to teach undergraduate students um, very smart students like yourselves, although you're not undergrads yet, but um, uh, I'm very lucky to be teaching at Duke where we get students like you. So that's just a little bit about me. Thank you. And as you briefly mentioned, so you originally trained as a marine biologist and completed a master's in natural resources. And then you got a master's in public administration and a PhD in management with a minor in cultural anthropology. What made you realize that you need to incorporate more social sciences into a scientific field? And why is it important to focus on humanities and the social sciences in conjunction with each other? Yeah. Um, yeah. And kind of in love with the ocean and, and just putting my head underwater and seeing everything and trying to understand um, how life took place in the ocean. But then as I was doing the last year of my undergrad, I was fortunate to get a fellowship or a scholarship to go to do my last year to Canada, uh, to Newfoundland. Newfoundland is, if you know, if you see a map of Canada, is an island, a big island that is um, on the East Coast in the maritime region. And it's 50 degrees latitude. In fact, um, it's influenced by the Labrador current. And in July, you can see icebergs drift by. And it's a very important province for fishing. So I was fortunate to be there at a moment of social transition where they had collapsed uh, the cod fishery uh, because of mismanagement. And the province was trying to figure out what to do. Um, so the, the entire situation was so mainstream that the most popular pop song when I got there, um, like the number one chart song in the province was the song about fishing. And so I was like, wow, I couldn't believe that these were issues that uh, were so important for so many people. And so I realized the importance of understanding the social issues if you want to use um, the ocean in particular ways. And so when I got back to Mexico, I started paying more attention to how fishermen lived and how people use the ocean. And, and some of that understanding can, can be, you know, through very rigorous development of scientific knowledge, but also through poetry and through the arts. So, so that's why I think the social and the humanities, social sciences and the humanities have a lot to offer to our understanding of how we use the ocean and, and ocean sustainability. That's a really interesting story about um, your time in Canada. And I think, you know, now more than ever, people are finally starting to realize the importance of looking at subjects from an interdisciplinary and intersectional perspective and really just finding ways to link different topics together. 
And you mentioned that you did some work with fisheries as well. So you were also one of the main investigators in a study conducted by Duke University, along with the UN's Food and Agricultural Association, studying small-scale fisheries, which aim to gather data for developing strategies to support sustainable small-scale fishers. So can you just expand a bit on your findings from the study and just what you did? Yeah, um, so as you mentioned, uh, this was a partnership between uh, my university and um, and my group and other colleagues here and FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, who is, is the main agency that, that essentially brings together all the member nations of the UN to talk about fishing issues and try to, to create policies, global policies uh, for the benefit of humanity, essentially. And so, so part of, of one thing that is lacking um, in fishing is an understanding of the small scale producer. We have a much better understanding of large scale fisheries. These are really large boats that harvest a lot of fish and, and scientists and policymakers are working hard to develop policies for those types of fisheries. But the more we spend time doing research in the coast uh, or coast around the world, the more we realize that there's a lot of small scale, small producers, fishermen that don't quite fit into the policies that we design for fisheries management. Not only that, um, it turns that it's very likely that most of the fish we eat, um, humans eat, as opposed to going for um, uh, other non-consumption uses or non-human um, consumption purposes, a lot of that fish is produced by small producers. And so, the, but we lack policies that work for small producers. Some of those small producers are very low income. Some of them do commercial and then subsistence fishing. Um, and so fishing is, is very immersed in or in interweaved with their livelihoods and, and strictly fisheries management policies do not work for them. So part of this large project is to, to try to understand better what kind of policies we can develop that are appropriate for small scale fishers. Um, it's also trying to understand what kind of economic contributions and impacts they make. So, and also understand what are the nutritional contributions um, their fishing makes. Because one of the interesting aspects of, of these fisheries is that they are act as a poverty um, safety net to those coastal societies. If those folk were not fishing, they might need to leave their homes and migrate to urban environments. Um, so fishing is not only a commercial activity, but serves also the purpose of employing and a population that otherwise will need to go somewhere else. And also they're fishing because they consume part of what they eat or they sell it in local markets. Um, they are also playing a function of providing high quality proteins and nutrients to populations that otherwise 
will not have such quality access to food. So understanding those types of contributions, the economic, the nutrition, the governance and the environmental um, are the goals of the project. So I hope that makes sense because it's quite complicated, of course. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think really goes to show the importance of really seeing, valuing and listening to the communities behind these industries to really bring away our own misconceptions and create policies that are actually creating positive change. And at least for me, even though I work a lot in environmentalism before looking at your studies, I wasn't just quite as aware as I probably should have been about the, the kind of presence and existence of all these small scale fisheries. So I think that was something really interesting that you brought to light. And uh, building on this study, could you please expand on the common pool resource theory, particularly in relation to your research with the Seri people from the Mexican fishing community? Ah, you, you really have done your homework. Um, very good. Yeah, so common pool resource theory, it's a theory that tries to explain how we use a particular type of resource um, that are called common pool resources that are different from that. Well, that are very important to understand how we use them for environmental, for, um, because most of them have environmental, um, yeah, have an environmental, let me, let me start again. Pool resources, most of the environmental issues we care about are issues that pertain to common pool resources. Like water, water is a common pool resource. Forests are a common pool resource. Clean air is a common pool resource. Fish are a common pool resource. And so common pool resource theory tries to explain, you know, tries to understand some of their characteristics and why we tend to overuse those resources. We tend to cut down our forests. We tend to pollute our waters. We tend to pollute our air. We tend to overfish. Um, and so the theory tries to explain why sometimes we do that and sometimes we succeed at not doing that. So understanding common pool resource theory, it's at the core of understanding environmental issues that we that we face um, in society in general. So just a last thing about common pool resources. Uh, a common pool resource is different from um, a private good, which would be something you own. And it's also different from what we call a public good, which is something we all own uh, in common, like a, like a street, like public radio, or, you know, those are public goods or a park. Common pool resource shares characteristics of private goods and shares characteristics of public goods. And those 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 aspects is what makes them easy to be overused because everybody wants to use them, but nobody wants to be the one that goes after and cleans them or if, if it's a park or unpollutes the air or so. So it's a fascinating um, type of good, if you will. Um, now, why I worked uh, on common pool resource theory on uh, on the Seri community. Seri community is an indigenous community in Mexico that it's very small, and it caught my attention when I was a grad student because they were not over harvesting as a species of clam that they were fishing. 
and everybody in the region was talking about about that. And it was interesting because the community immediately to the south, neighboring them, that also was fishing for the same clam, was overfishing it. So, so my studies, um, I use common pool resource theory to go and spend time in the community and try to explain why the Seri, or Comcac as they call themselves, why they were able to avoid overusing the resource and their neighbors to the south were not able to do the same. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, I think you explained the common pool resource theory very well. And it really is, I agree with what you said, that's essential to understand because at the end of the day, you know, we need to get to a point where humans and nature are in balance. And in order to do this, we need to understand the resources. And as you were saying, there are communities that have found this balance. I think we just, we have a lot to learn from these different communities. And then, so kind of following on from this, you also researched how to integrate pro-social and anti-social behavior into theories of collective action. Can you expand on your findings from this and how it relates to sustainability? Yeah, um, that was a study that we did in Mexico um, with communities that live neighboring and using marine protected areas. Marine protected areas are, uh, an example of marine protected area is a marine park. It's a national park, but it's on the ocean, where under certain conditions, fishers that live there can use part of the, the park to fish. You know, under certain conditions, maybe using only certain gears, only fishing certain species. And there's areas inside the park where nobody can, can fish. And so we studied how people use those areas. Um, and we wanted to understand why under certain circumstances, fishers will work together, cooperate. And under certain circumstances, they will compete with each other, not cooperate. Um, so you know, an example of cooperation will be um, social behavior. So a social behavior will be uh, an example of a social behavior will be cooperation. And then an example of an antisocial behavior would be what we call hyper-competition or conflict. And so we wanted to understand if creating the protected areas was changing the behavior of fishers to be, make them more cooperative or more competitive with each other. Because so so because we've been working in, in some of these communities for a long time and the parks are relatively new. And this is in, in the northwest part of Mexico that I referred to, the Gulf of California. And so we wanted to understand what effect the creating and establishing marine parks had in the communities. So it was really interesting because we found that the establishment of, of, of marine parks, marine protected areas, was having the effect of making fishers at times more cooperative with each other, but also more competitive with each other. And that, that is something that we thought was not possible. You know, either you are more cooperative or more competitive, but not, not both at the same time. And our results were saying, this is happening both at the same time. So we realized that, that um, we can be both cooperative and competitive. And in fact, that 
that might not be necessarily bad for, let's say, maintaining the park. But when that, and talking about balance, when that balance between competition and cooperation starts to get out of whack and you start to get more competition, then things can, if they're not modified, then that competition can transition into conflict and then you really have a problem in your hands. And, and if you look at the literature of marine parks or marine protected areas, there's a lot of places where fishers are in conflict with the tourists or with tourist operators. Um, so that's an example where the balance between cooperation and competition has got out of whack and, and you have a lot of conflict there. Um, but in these particular places, it seems the balance was still there. And, and part of our research was trying to understand what kept that balance and why that balance could go off. Yeah, so that's, that's that study. And, and, to do, and to conduct that study, it was really interesting because we, we spent time in the communities um, talking to people, but also playing games, like, like board games, where we will ask, you know, they will, the instructions of the game will be to simulate cooperation and to simulate competition. So we use a number of different research techniques to, to get at our study for that particular study, yeah. That's really insightful. And I think thinking about that balance between cooperation and competition is something that I think we can all apply in our lives, no matter kind of what field we work in or what issue we're trying to solve. I think keeping that balance is really important and particularly how you kind of analyzed how people were keeping those balances. Like you talked about your different research methods in those board games. I think that's something really creative and really shows the kind of holistic approach you took in, the, in your research there. So do you have any plans for future research? And if so, could you expand on what and why? There's always plans, not enough time. Um, well, the, the project that we talked about with, um, with FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, um, that is still ongoing. So that project, um, we're wrapping it up this year. And often projects, instead of they answer the, the original questions, but those, those answers motivate new questions. So from the work with the SERI, the work with um, the FAO and the work with marine protected areas, new questions have, have emerged. And so I'm, I'm continuing to work with the SERI, uh, mostly um, to try to understand their history and how they continue to, to use their marine resources. Um, I'm, and that is work that I do at a very local level. And I, I'm fortunate to take a class to Mexico where we visit the, these communities every year. So it's, for me, it's an easy way to collect new data and understand what is happening there. So that's research at the local level that continues that I've been doing for the last 20 years. Um, it's really great to follow a story for 20 years. Um, and then the work at FAO is more of a global level. And so I expect that will continue, that will continue for the next few years as well. Um, it, right now, uh, for instance, at two hours ago, I was in a call with some colleagues that, that create maps, that, that use geospatial tools um, to understand 
how you know ocean processes. So we were in a meeting thinking and planning new research that will use you know map making and creating maps about uh, how fishers use the ocean. And so I can see that that the next couple of years we're also going to be working on on research that involves geospatial analysis tools to, for instance, map policies, how certain policies, um, uh, imagine that you can map a policy, what will that look like? I'm, I'm curious about that too, and we're thinking how we can do that. Yeah, well, that so those are just start. a couple of, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, continue. No, I just want to say those, those yeah, I, I just want to say those are a couple of examples. Well, yeah, no, that does all sound very interesting. And I know I speak for both Georgia and myself when I say that we are really excited to continue following your research and reading about it because, you know, everything you're describing sounds fascinating, especially at policy mapping as well. So that's all we have for today. So thank you to all the listeners for tuning into today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at EcoCircleINT. And if you have any questions or thoughts you'd like to share, feel free to message us using the contact button on our website. If you enjoyed our conversation today, make sure that you check out Season 1, Episode 10, where we interview Professor John McNeil about environmental history. Thank you so much, Javier, for being with us. Thank you for the invitation, uh, Chloe and Georgia. Um, I'm, I'm very happy to have the opportunity to chat with you.